All right, we're going to continue on. Last week we took a break because it was Easter, and uh, so we took a break from Isaiah. Uh, this week we're going to continue on in our series in Isaiah, and we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 41. Isaiah chapter 41. This is the word of God. Be silent before me, you islands. Let the nations renew their strength. Let them come forward and speak. Let us meet together at the place of judgment. Who has stirred up one from the east, calling him in righteousness to his service? He hands nations over to him and subdues kings before him. He turns them to dust with his sword, to wind-blowing chaff with his bow. He pursues them and moves on unscathed by a path his feet have not traveled before. Who has done this and carried it through, calling forth the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, with the first of them and with the last, I am He. The islands have seen it in fear. The ends of the earth tremble. They approach and come forward. They help each other and say to their companions, be strong. The metal worker encourages the goldsmith, and the one who smooths with the hammer spurs on the one who strikes the anvil. One says of the welding, it is good. The other nails down the idol so it will not topple. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you from the ends of the earth, from its farthest corners I called you. I said, you are my servant. I have chosen you and have not rejected you. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. All who rage against you will surely be ashamed and disgraced. Those who oppose you will be as nothing and perish. Though you search for your enemies, you will not find them. Those who wage war against you will be as nothing at all. For I am the Lord your God who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, Do not fear, I will help you. Do not be afraid, you worm, Jacob. Little Israel, do not fear, for I myself will help you, declares the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. See, I will make you into a threshing sledge, new and sharp with many teeth. You will thresh the mountains and crush them and reduce the hills to chaff. You will winnow them. The wind will pick them up and a gale will blow them away. But you will rejoice in the Lord and glory in the Holy One of Israel. The poor and needy search for water, but there is none. Their tongues are parched with thirst, but I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will make rivers flow on barren heights and springs within the valleys. I will turn the desert into pools of water and the parched ground into springs. I will put in the desert the cedar and the acacia, the myrtle and the olive. I will set junipers in the wasteland, the fir and the cypress together, so that people may see and know, may consider and understand that the hand of the Lord has done this, that the Holy One of Israel has created it. Present your case, says the Lord. Set forth your arguments, says Jacob's king. Tell us, you idols, what is going to happen. 
Tell us what the former things were, so that we may consider them and know their final outcome. Or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what the future holds, so we may know that you are God's. Do something, whether good or bad, so we will be dismayed and filled with fear. But you are less than nothing, and your works are utterly worthless. Whoever chooses you is detestable. I have stirred up one from the north, and he comes, one from the rising sun who calls on my name. He treads on rulers as if they were mortar, as if he were a potter treading the clay. Who told of this from the beginning so we could know, or beforehand so we could say he was right? No one told of this. No one foretold it. No one heard any words from you. I was the first to tell Zion, look, here they are. I gave to Jerusalem a messenger of good news. I look, but there is no one. No one among the gods to give counsel. No one to give answer when I ask them. See, they are all false. Their deeds amount to nothing. Their images are but wind and confusion. Now, before we uh, consider this passage together, let's pray. Our Father, we would ask that uh, in your grace you would be with us. Help us to understand your word. Lord, I pray that you will uh, continue to bless this congregation, bless this church body. Help us to grow together in love, uh, to truly care for one another. Lord, I pray that you will strengthen us in holiness and call us to the service of righteousness. We think also, Lord, of uh, the students who are going uh, overseas uh, this this spring, this summer. I pray that you'll watch over them in the various activities that you give them to do. I pray that you will watch over them, give them uh, good opportunities uh, to witness for your name. Lord, we would ask that uh, whether we uh, are here or away, uh, we pray that we will be good ambassadors for Jesus Christ. Uh, we pray that you will enable us by your spirit to represent you well uh, wherever we are, uh, wherever you take us. Grant us safety, we pray. Uh, Lord, we would ask that your way will also prevail uh, in terms of the law of our land. Uh, we pray that we will align with you, that you will move hearts in our society so that we can balance out what it means to live uh, in a pluralistic uh, liberal democracy, but one that can also honor you. Uh, one where uh, the laws of our land can reflect your character and your heart. Help us with these things. We, we acknowledge that often we don't know what to do. Uh, a lot of times issues are uh, intractable uh, and interminable in terms of uh, our getting to the end of them. So give us insight and wisdom beyond our own. And then give us power by your Spirit. Fill us with your Spirit to testify for your truth. Allow us to do so boldly, but also with great love and mercy and empathy and compassion. Help us to be people, Lord, we pray, who are like your Son. For we ask it in his holy name. Amen. Well, last Sunday was Easter Sunday. Sunday previous to that, uh, we looked at Isaiah 40. And Isaiah 40 is one of those climactic texts uh, in all of the Bible. In the structure of the book of Isaiah, uh, Isaiah 1 through 39 uh, is considerably the first block. 
Isaiah 40 through 66, with a couple other subdivisions, is considered the second block. So if you're dividing the book in two, it's 1 through 39, 40 through 66. And chapter 40 is referred to often in the New Testament. It's just one of those glorious texts that if you will remember when I was preaching it, you were probably thinking the entire time, my goodness, the text is a lot better than anything Steve is saying. And that's true. I mean, that's always true, but you're a little bit more aware of it uh, on a mountaintop experience like Isaiah 40. And a lot of us, of course, like to take, I will acknowledge slightly out of context, but we like to take the last verse of Isaiah chapter 40 as sort of not a life verse necessarily, but one of those things that just we love to come back to again and again to strengthen ourselves. Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Uh, this verse or a section of this verse uh, adorns many a wall in many a home uh, or an apartment cross-stitched together or whatever stitch you want to use to produce it, you know, then put on the wall. You're going to remember this, that they will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Now, a lot of people, I shouldn't say that, some people never read the next chapter. Their experience in Isaiah stops with that verse. It starts in Isaiah 41, and Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1, it ends at verse 31 of chapter 40. But you'll notice, if you just drop out the big 41 number in your Bible, Isaiah was not writing numbers, he was writing text. He wasn't putting chapter divisions in. You hit, they will renew their strength, drop the heading in your Bible, drop the big 41 in your Bible, and the very next thing you read is, be silent before me, you islands. Let the nations renew their strength. In other words, you're not supposed to stop at verse 31. You've been told to renew your strength. You've been told that those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. Now, you're, now the nations are called to renew their strength. You're immediately continuing on with the flow of what God is revealing through the prophet. Be silent before me, you islands. Now, you will recall, of course... That when we hit, that when we use the word islands, when we find the word islands in Isaiah or the prophets, older translations will translate it as coastlands or coasts. You're referring to the ends of the earth, the antipodes, uh, the poles. And so when you talk about the islands, you're talking about the extremities of the earth. Be silent before me, you islands. Let the nations renew their strength. This is a global call. Let everyone renew their strength. Let everyone be strong. Now, if you're thoughtful, you recognize, of course, coming just out of chapter 40, verse 31, that the way that you renew your strength is by waiting on the Lord, by submitting to Him. Let the nations renew their strength. Now, unfortunately, what we're going to find in this chapter, God offers people real strength. He offers them the renewal of their power. But in this chapter, we're going to find the nations are trying to renew their strength on their own with catastrophic consequences. Let them come forward and speak. Let us meet together at the place of judgment. So God is saying, strengthen yourself. If you, will, if you will not allow me to renew your strength, strengthen yourself, then come meet me in judgment and we'll discuss it. Because God says, I have a plan for the world. I am going to stir up one from the east and call him in righteousness to his service. Now, we will talk more about this in the next couple weeks when I'm back in a couple weeks. This is a reference to a king named Cyrus who will be named by Isaiah in just a couple chapters. This is a critical disclosure in the revelation of God. God is going to raise up King Cyrus after Jerusalem has been destroyed, 
after Judah has been taken into exile and captivity in Babylon, after 70 years in Babylon, the Persians are going to come in and their king will be named Cyrus. God is saying, long before Jerusalem even falls, that the exile, that the Jerusalem will fall, the exile will last for 70 years, and then Cyrus will release the people. God's, God's telling this 150 years ahead of time. The people will know that God is the one who declares the end from the beginning. In fact, over the next number of chapters, what we'll see is that God's ability to tell the future is a diagnostic test of His deity. How do we know that God is real? He can predict things that no one could imagine. How do we know that the idols are worthless and false? They can't do anything. That's a trope that's going to run through this text again and again and again, uh, which we'll see in the chapters to come. So God is here referring to Cyrus, who will be named in a few chapters. He's the one from the east, calling him in righteousness to his servant. Literally, whom righteousness calls to its foot. It's like, uh, you know, with an obedient dog. Uh, How many of you... You can even raise your hand if you want. How many of you have a dog? A few of you? How many of, you, how, how many of your dogs are obedient? Oh, I'm actually really jealous of, of you. Uh, we have a dog uh, which has a nice disposition. That's about it. Uh, and, you know, it, it, she's not too bad. But whenever I'm walking, I always, I always just feel like I'm a horrible parent. Because we'll walk by dogs, and she's not aggressive, she just wants to play, and so she'll start pulling on the leash and, you know, trying to run around. And, ev- and you can tell just the people who actually know what they're doing with dogs or actually send their dogs to obedience training or whatever it is. Their dog just walks right at the heel, a respectful quarter step behind. They stop, their dog stops, their dog sits, you know, they walk, and my dog just sort of running circles on her leash, you know, yipping and doing all kinds of things. And what I want is I want to have that power that basically says, like, snap the fingers and, and stop and the dog just stops. Or, here, and the dog just comes. I, I, I don't have that. Some people do. But the idea here is that righteousness, it's literally whom righteousness calls to foot. Righteousness personifies as right here, and the person comes and obeys. In other words, God is raising someone up who's going to be absolutely the obedient servant of righteousness. That's the point of the metaphor, which is why it gets cashed out in translation, calling him in righteousness to his service. This king is going to be a servant of God, even if he doesn't really know it, even if he doesn't understand all that he's doing has been given to him by God to do. God hands nations over to him. He subdues kings before him. And this is fascinating. It means that even though Cyrus is going to be going out conquering nations, it's actually God who is, de- who is defeating the nations. God hands over the nations. God subdues the kings. God is the one in overarching sovereignty who is, con- who is in control of all world events. He turns them to dust with his sword, and to wind blow and chaff with his bow. He pursues them and moves unscathed. By his path his feet have not traveled before. Who has done this? Who calls forth the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord. In other words, God is saying, this is my work. I'll use human agents, but I am doing this. With the first of them and with the last, I am He. Now, what's the response? These islands who have been told, renew your strength, be strong. Are now, the nations who are told to renew their strength are now told they're going to be conquered. And so they begin to be afraid. Verse 5, the eyes have seen it in fear. 
the ends of the earth tremble. They understand that when Cyrus is conquering the world, they'll see this juggernaut and they will be terrified. You think all through history of superpowers at war and all the smaller nations trembling, knowing it's only an, a matter of time before they're wiped away. The islands are terrified. So what do they do? And this is where you get to the heart of the distinction in Isaiah's argument. Something is happening in the world that you cannot control and that will overwhelm you and threatens to destroy you. Now, for us, we can also, at this point, take that as a metaphor at some level for personal experiences, too. Say, look, there's something in your life which is overwhelming you right now. There's something in your life which makes you afraid. There's an enormous challenge that you're facing. So what's your response going to be? The nations give way to fear, and to control their fear, they turn to idols. They turn to the works of their hands, and they encourage each other. We're terrified. Look at, look at what's happening in the world. So be strong. They say to their companions, verse 6, be strong. God has told them, renew your strength. Now they're saying to each other, let's be strong. But God has already told you, 40, 31, the way to be strong is to trust in Him. But they're not trusting in Him. That's the one thing they won't do. The metal worker encourages the goldsmith, the one who smooths with the hammer, spurs on the one who strikes the anvil, the one in the welding says, it's good. In other words, they're turning to the, what they can do, what they can make. They're turning to the idols that they craft with their own hands. And the worthlessness of it is seen in the fact that one of them actually nails it down. I'm not sure this is quite steady. You know, our God might fall over. Let's fasten him to the wall. You know, I, I, in, my, in my office with my library, I have a reasonable number of, of books in terms of weight, and so you have bookcases, and uh, Hugh and, and Dave Farrow and some others are very graciously uh, to preserve my life. They have bracketed them into the wall and bracketed them together so they don't tip over. That's what they're doing with the idol. The idol has no more standing power than a bookcase. And in fact, probably the bookcase with all the weight of books isn't going to go anywhere. Right? It is theoretically possible. But this idol is so worthless. Your God can't even keep its balance. Your God can't even stand upright. You have to make it, then nail it to a wall so it doesn't topple over. That's the power of this being that you are turning to. And the reality is it's easy for us, of course, to, to see that when it comes to physical idols. Not so easy for us to see when it comes to all the spiritual idols that we have in our lives, all the things that we're actually trusting in. You know, our, our money, our education, our, our cleverness, you know, uh, I used to be able to trust in my good looks, but now that I'm middle-aged, I can't do that anymore. You know, but all these things that we're trusting in, all these things that we're trying to find security in, they're all idols. They'll all topple over. It's only in God that there's actually strength to be found. And so the reminder is this, and this is what you need to remember. You no matter what is going on in your life, no matter what's going on in the world, you do not need to respond like the rest of the world. You don't. There can be things that happen in your life which are genuinely debilitating, which are genuinely painful, physically, emotionally, spiritually. There can be things you're facing which are really terrible. 
terrible. But you don't need to give way to fear. And you certainly don't need to go start constructing idols and nailing them to the wall to give you a false sense of security. You can trust God. So God reminds His people, you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen. In other words, Jacob, Israel, don't forget, you don't need to choose idols. I've already chosen you. You belong to me. You are my special people. I love you. Of course, this is extended to all of the people of God, everyone who has faith in the Lord, uh, everyone who trusts in God through Jesus Christ, to, to update it for today. Everyone who wants to know God, everyone who wants to trust God, uh, has first been chosen by Him. You descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you from the ends of the earth, from its farthest corners I called you. I said, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not rejected you. In other words, no matter what's going on in the world, no matter, no matter what's going on in your life, God hasn't rejected you. Let the world walk by sight. Let, 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 let your neighbors walk by sight. Try to, try to help them not to. But don't fall into the same pitfalls of everyone else. You've been chosen by God. You have a special relationship with God through Jesus Christ. You have faith. You can trust. You can entrust yourself to the living God. Though all the world gives way, though all the nations are ravished and ruined, you can trust in God because there's only, only strength is found ultimately in Him. And so you look to God. I have chosen you and have not rejected you. God recognizes His people. And as people recognize Him, you are my God. You are my people. So, verse 10, so do not fear. If all you do is spend time on social media or looking at the news, there will be an awful lot of things that you will discover that you could be afraid of in our world today. One of the major things, I would think, one of the macro fears that should be learned from social media is just that there is such a thing as social media. If that doesn't make you afraid, I don't know what will. Uh, forget the content, just the fact that this exists is scary enough. Uh, but you look at the world, and there's going to be an awful lot to be afraid of. And so you take your eyes off all the distractions of the world, and you put them back on God, because with God you do not need to fear. So... The conclusion for you, in terms of practical application, Isaiah is saying, is God is doing something amazing in the world. The world is terrified, so they're turning to their idols, not you. You don't turn to your idols, who you make. You turn to God who made you. You turn to God who chose you. You don't choose your idols. You, choose, you turn to the one who chose you already. And if you do, you will not fear. So do not fear, for I am with you. And this is what you really want. At, at, at the end of the day, you just want that presence. You just want to be with God. And He is with us. I am with you. I am present. I am beside you. I've got you in my arms. You can go to sleep. You'll wake up this way. Do not fear. I am with you. My presence is with you. Do not be dismayed. 
for I am your God. You're trying to strengthen each other. The nations are trying to renew their own strength, but I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand, that combination of rightness and power. God is saying, I've got you. I've got you. You're okay. You're all right. No matter what is going on, you're held in the power of my righteousness. I will strengthen you. Verses 11 and 12 basically tell you that all of your enemies, everyone who's attacking you, all the things that are against you, you won't even find them. They'll be as nothing at all. Why? Verse 13, for I am the Lord your God who takes hold of your right hand and says you, do not fear, I will help you. See, again, this is, there's, there's repetition. So often in this chapter, what you'll get is it'll come back to, do not be afraid. Just don't be afraid. Don't turn to anything else except God. Just do not fear. Do not be afraid, you worm, Jacob, little Israel. Do not fear, for I myself will help you, declares the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Now, verses 14 and 16 are a little uh, interior, self-contained unit. Uh, they, they run with this literary inclusio, these brackets of Holy One of Israel. So verse 14 says the Holy One of Israel. Verse 16 says the Holy One of Israel. And it's just a little contained little unit, okay, right in the middle of the chapter. Kind of, this is giving you the heart of the message. The heart of the message is do not be afraid, do not fear, for I myself will help you. You've heard that again and again and again already, but now you're being given it in sort of summary form, in a nutshell. And here's the really encouraging thing. God will help you, you little worm. And so you read that and you go, I don't know, I, I feel slight, almost personally insulted here. No, I do not be afraid, you worm Jacob. Oh, okay. What is God saying here? Is God being sort of just gratuitously insulting towards us? No, by the time you get here, you've already seen, he's already chosen, he, he's chosen these people, he loves his people. So this is not a statement of their value. It's an image of their status and helplessness. It's a worm. Now, I don't know. <laughs> I, I used to do a fair bit of fishing. I actually, uh, I preferred using lures rather than live bait, even as a child. Um, but I, I, I have used a fair number of worms in fishing as well over the years. And I probably would be reluctant to do so today for a variety of reasons. Uh, but I, I, I have sent many, many a worm to a watery grave. Uh, <laughs> Many more drowned than were ever eaten by a fish, I assure you. Uh, but uh, worms don't seem to have a, I don't know how they do in their own little sort of ecological uh, world in terms of fighting. But I don't, they don't seem to be just bristling with natural defenses, you know. Like you don't really think of worms in terms of armor plates or fangs or, you know, like they're basically eating dirt, right? Like that's not very positive either. Uh, I, I've never seen a worm. One day I would just love to see a worm. It's kind of like a, a, a python or a boa constrictor. Like the robin grabs it and just twists around the robin's neck and takes it down. You know, I, I've never seen anything like that. Like they're just helpless little things and their whole goal, their whole survival strategy is burrow into the dirt below the level the beak can reach. Like that's the whole thing they're trying to do, right? So, that's what you are. 
come to church and you leave feeling good about yourself. You are a worm. And there's robins and there's fishermen or fisher boys or fisher persons, as the case may be. And so you are in a lot of trouble. But part of what you need to do is just recognize what your capabilities are so you'll trust the one who can strengthen you. That's the point. Do not be afraid, you little worm. Don't be afraid. I myself will help you, declares the Lord. A worm being helped by the omnipotent God is fine. A worm being defended by a God who is all-powerful has nothing to worry about. Not because it has lots of natural defenses, but because it has a supernatural defender. That's better by far. In fact, now the image shifts. I will make you, you little worm, I will make you into a threshing sledge, new and sharp with many teeth. You will thresh the mountains and crush them and reduce the hills to chaff. It's like God saying, look, you know, you, you, you little worm, you're going to be on the hook. You're going to go down into the water. That little fish is going to swim up to you. I'm going to make you into a shark. I'm going to make you a great white shark with rows of teeth. And that little sunfish that was coming up to nibble on you is going to turn around as fast as it can and swim away. You have no more to worry about than that. You little worm at the base of Mount Everest, wondering, how could I ever crawl over that? And realizing that you never could. I'm going to make you into a threshing sledge. You're going to be like uh, an enormous farm combine in front of a field of weeds. And you're going to roll over. The threshing sledges were how they, they uh, separated the grain from the chaff in this day. This big sledge you know, with, with rocks or with metal or with wood, uh, sort of teeth put under it, so that when you ran it over the grain, it would, it would all be separated and chewed up. You could separate the good stuff from the, the bad stuff. And the image is basically like a little worm at the base of Mount Everest. And then all of a sudden, Mount Everest is, is just a little weed and and that worm has grown to be this massive threshing sledge. Just like the shark and the, uh, the shark and the sunfish or the rock bass or the perch or whatever the little species is. How much does, does that threshing sledge have to fear for a little plant? Nothing at all. God says, you want to know what it looks like for me to renew your strength? It looks like this. This is what I will do for you because I am the Holy One of Israel your Redeemer. I, I buy you to belong to me. I'm going to purchase you. I'm going to bring you. Now, this, this, this evokes all that Exodus language, all that Passover imagery, but in a new context, the way that I brought you out of slavery, I'm going to do it again, but I'm going to bring you out of Babylon through this one out of the east that I'm going to raise up. You're looking at a, at, at a mountain obstacle. You're looking at an obstacle you can't possibly surmount, but I will reduce it before you. It will be as nothing before you. Not because, you haven't, not because you're able, but because you recognize you're not able. That's the point. Start recognizing your limitations. We are far, far more limited than we can possibly imagine. And God is far more capable than we dare to dream. And when God is on our side, when God is working on our behalf, there is nothing to fear. And so in an odd way, 
you embrace being a worm because it's not a statement of your value. But it's a statement of how able you are to face all of life apart from the help of God. It's an image of humility. It's an image of self-recognition where we say, God, I'm in over my head. I can't do this without you. I don't want to do this without you. God, I need you. And then God can make you stronger than you could ever imagine. He really can. And some of you know this. Some of you, I know, have experienced horrific things. And, and some are, are still walking through really tough things even today. And some of you are probably starting out on a new road of really difficult things, either today or in the, in the upcoming future. You don't even know what it is, but it's coming. And you know. Some of you can speak very clearly also about what God has done in your life. That what you could not do, what you could not imagine, that obstacle that you could never overcome, God has found a way through empowering you in special ways, through touching your heart, touching your mind, just even sometimes even just holding you together when you felt like everything was disintegrating, somehow he did it. Somehow his strength was sufficient. You were like a worm, wriggling and helpless, but an omnipotent God was standing guard over you the whole time. And in the end, the worm with God has victory over the highest mountain. That's what he does. So what do you do at the end of verse 16? You will rejoice. <laughs> you will praise God. You will be grateful to God. You will be thankful to God. You will be led to praise the Lord. You will worship God because you will recognize, God, you did this. You did this. You are amazing what you have done in my life. How, how could you do this? I could never imagine this. You've done it. I have more reason to trust you now. So we can actually get to a point. We can actually get to a point where we are thankful for our trials without ever minimizing the pain and suffering of going through them, we can actually get to a point where we realize that what God has done is he has revealed more of himself through us than we knew before. We can trust him more. We have greater security than we knew before. God can do that. Verses 17 through 29, I won't expose it uh, in any detail. Basically, it says this. So the imagery is, is this. The imagery is the poor and needy searching for water, there's none, their tongues are parched, but the Lord will answer them. You ever feel like it's like they're lost in the desert, and then God comes and gives them the two things they need, shade and water. I, the Lord God, will not forsake them. I will make rivers flow. Then he talks about all of these plant trees he's going to plant. Uh, he, he's making it, the, the desert becomes the Garden of Eden. How's that? These lost, parched, lonely, suffering people in the desert, they need two things. They need water, and they need a break from the heat. They need water, and they need shade. And so God makes a whole forest grow right out of the desert. And right out of the burning sand comes flowing pools of life-giving water. God gives them exactly what they need. Shade, shelter, and living water. That's the kind of God who chooses people to belong to himself. That's the kind of God who gives you today. And again, because we have, we have choices to make all of the time, and almost every day we get the choice, are we going to trust in our own strength or God's? 
Are we going to embrace our weakness, or are we going to try to encourage each other to, to have the false strength of idols? What are we going to do? How are we going to live? Are we going to trust the living God and, and, and experience times of refreshing and blessing, or will we do it on our own, and things will get worse and worse and worse? Those are the options, day after day, day after day. But don't forget, the Holy One of Israel is also your Redeemer. He's bought you. He loves you. He has your best interests at heart. Though all the world disintegrates into chaos and trials come, God loves you. God will take care of you. And God will bless you so richly in the end that you will be amazed at the power of God to bring life and fruitfulness from death and decay. So that's a God who's actually worth praising because real life's tough. You will rejoice in the Lord. You will glory in God, your Savior. And so that's what we're going to do now. I'm asking musicians to come lead us in a song, uh, give us an opportunity to respond to praise uh, and to thank God for all that He is.